morning, Woodside Community Church. Glad you guys are here with us. Uh, thank you to, uh, to Joanna and the worship team. It's excellent. I think I'm losing my voice, so I was going to try to not sing, but I couldn't help it. Um, so, Minzy, if I, if I run out of voice, you're up. Um, I want you to come finish, finish from my notes for me. All right. Um, so we're glad you're here with us. Uh, we're going to continue our, our journey through the book of Mark as we explore uh, this, this person, Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Um, before we begin, a quick reminder that um, tonight we're going to be starting our, our new series um, through the book of Genesis, Sunday evening services at 6 o'clock. Um, it's a short, informal um, service. I promise I don't preach as long on Sunday nights as I preach as long on Sunday mornings. Um, we'd love to have you come. We're going to work through the book of Genesis. I've recently realized how much I love the book of Genesis and how important the book of Genesis is to everything that we believe. All right? Nothing that we're talking about here, nothing in the New Testament makes any sense without Genesis, right? without understanding what happens in that book. So we're going to explore that book. And it's, I want to encourage you, I think it would be a good opportunity to bring... Um, some non-Christian friends with you. We're going to talk a lot of, about a lot of interesting stuff like the gospel and about God's existence, how, how we know. Uh, we're going to talk about creation, uh, evolution versus creation. We're going to talk about science and faith and all these interesting things. I think it would be a really good opportunity for you to kind of bring some friends and then we'll, we'll have some good conversations about, about God and the gospel and, and these things. So 6 o'clock, back in the fellowship hall. We'll, we'll hopefully see you there. Um, last week, you were here. We, we talked about faith. Right, we saw two remarkable triumphs of faith last week. We saw this woman with this 12-year this kind of debilitating um, ailment. We saw her get healed, and we saw this, this dead little girl brought back to life by Jesus. You could call chapter 5 the faith chapter. But if that's the case, then you could call chapter 6 the no faith chapter. Based on our story this morning and then the upcoming story about, about Herod and, his, and John the Baptist. So in contrast to last week, this week we're going to see a great lack of faith. We saw the great results of faith. Now we're going to see the tragic consequences of no faith or unbelief. Last week we talked for a second. Remember, we talked about how the Pope last week kind of made a kind of a stir by, by saying that uh, faith doesn't matter. Like you don't have to believe. It's not a big deal. You know, Jesus died and, and redeemed for all of us. So it doesn't matter if you have any faith as long as you're just good and follow your conscience. But again, as our story is going to point out this morning, I think, um, the Bible seems to teach the opposite. Right? We're going to see a great example of what this unbelief that the Pope is talking about results in. Right? So that's what we're looking at. We're, this week is kind of the, the sequel to last week. Right? The Bible knows what it's doing. This story follows the last story for a reason. So last week we talked about faith and unbelief. This week, we're, last week was faith and belief. This week we're talking about unbelief. So we're going to do what we did last week. I'll read the story. I'm just going to run through it really quickly. And then I want to draw some conclusions from the story. We're going to look at the definition of unbelief. What is it? We're going to look at the source of unbelief, where it comes from, the power of unbelief, the result of unbelief, and then the remedy for unbelief. And this is important because this applies to everyone. Right? I don't care if you're a Christian in here. I don't care if you're the most hardcore atheist or if you're a Buddhist or a Muslim. Everybody believes in something. Right? It's not like Christians believe in stuff and other people don't. No, everyone has faith in something. And in having faith in that something, they choose other things that they do not believe in. Right? So that's what we're looking at, this, this unbelief. We all have this faith. So, this, is, so this, this applies to every single one of us. So, so let's start by reading the passage there in, in Mark 
chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It's printed there inside your bulletin if you want to follow along. This is God's Word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Let's thank you for the blessing and the opportunity it is to, to stand up here and, and to study on your word and proclaim your word um, with my brothers and sisters here. So, Father, right now I pray that you would work. pray that this time would be about you. and pray that you would get all the glory. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so the story this morning is pretty simple. Last week was a big, kind of long story. We had to spend a long time kind of explaining it, running through it. We can get through this one uh, pretty quick. It's, it's pretty simple. Up to this point, remember, we're, we're, we're now at chapter 6. We're about a third of the way through the book of Mark. And that, that whole time, all five chapters, we've basically been in the same place. Right? We've been in Galilee, right up north around kind of this big, massive lake in Capernaum where Jesus spent a lot of his time. That's where Peter is from and a lot of the apostles went there. And the whole story is basically taking place in that one place. Well, now all of a sudden in chapter 6, the, the scene shifts. Jesus heads south to his hometown, which we know is Nazareth. Now, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, right? I was born in Dallas, Texas, but I grew up in little old podunk Hickory, North Carolina. No one's ever heard of Hickory. No one knows anything about Hickory. That's where I grew up. And Nazareth was even smaller, even more backwoods, and even more insignificant than Hickory, North Carolina. And that, that's difficult, all right? It was this tiny little town. It covered about 60 acres and only had about 500 people in it. All right, you know, Queens Boulevard across the street, the Big Six over here, that covers about 15 acres, and it has 983 apartments in that one kind of complex, each with multiple people living in them. So you got two or 3,000 people in those few buildings right there, right? About six or seven times as many people as were in Jesus' entire hometown. And as we're going to see, Jewish families back then were generally large, right? They were often 10 or 12 people. So you're talking about a town with maybe 40 or 50 families in it, right? Everyone would have known everyone, and everyone would have known who Jesus is. So, as often as, as he does generally in Capernaum, as we saw, Jesus comes down to Nazareth, and it's the Sabbath, it's Saturday, and he, gets, he does what he usually does. He gets up in the synagogue, and he begins to preach. And as we saw back in the very first chapter, whenever Jesus preaches, people are amazed. Mark 1.22, remember that, it said, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Well, the exact same thing happens here in Nazareth. The people are just amazed. But they do something different with their amazement. Look at verse 3. In response to this kind of amazing, one-of-a-kind teaching, they say, uh, Is this not the carpenter, Jesus? Again, remember, they know Jesus. He spent most of his 30 years living in this town. And they knew that he's just this simple carpenter. 
By the way, the Greek word there, tekton, that we translate carpenter, we're not sure exactly what it meant. It either meant carpenter or like a stonemason, or just kind of a general builder, someone who used his hands. Right? We don't see Jesus using a lot of carpentry metaphors, but he uses a lot of building metaphors. So he may or may not have been a carpenter. Either way, we know that he worked with wood or he worked with stone. He, he worked with his hands. He was a laborer. Right? And we see these people kind of saying, wait a second, this guy's just a common worker, right? Builders weren't highly respected back then. They were kind of menial laborers. It was kind of a common, more lowly job. So they look at Jesus and they ask, what is this lowly construction worker doing up here teaching us in the synagogue? And they would have also known that Jesus hadn't gone off to seminary for a number of years and gotten some big fancy seminary degree, right? He hadn't gone and studied with any of the great rabbis of the day. They know that he shouldn't know anything. They're thinking, who is this uneducated, lowly builder to come and talk to us about the scriptures? Right? They, they apparently didn't see like the glowing halo over Jesus' head that we see in all his pictures, right? It seems so obvious to us. Right? Guys, there's a halo. It's obviously God, right? There wasn't a halo. They, they, they knew Jesus. They were so familiar with Jesus that they just couldn't get past his, his humble origins. He just seems like such a normal, unimportant guy. And you got to remember, back then, we're talking 2,000 years ago, kind of like status and, and class lines, all these things were much more rigid than they are even today. They had these rigidly defined class lines, and it was very difficult to kind of elevate yourself out of whatever you were born into. So such an ordinary, normal person should not be able to do and teach such things. We, we know this guy. There's no way this stuff can come from this guy. We know his, we know his mother, Mary. We know James and, and Joseph and Simon, his brothers, plus his sisters are right here. And this is an important point, again, to make in a, in a Catholic neighborhood. Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's just what the Bible says, right? Mary knew Joseph many times, if you want to use kind of a biblical euphemism, right? She had at least... Seven other children. There are at least five brothers that we know of and at least two sisters, right? Mary was great, but she was a sinner just like the rest of us. And the people say, we, we know his mom. We know his family. This is Jesus. What is going on here? And then there at the end of verse 3, we see the people take offense at Jesus. And the Greek word there is, is scandalon, right? You can hear the word in there, right? That is our word scandal. It comes from this word. It literally means to kind of to cause to stumble or, or fall over. Right? People were so put off, they were so repelled by Jesus. They were scandalized. They were ashamed. They did not want to be associated with this man. And Jesus responds to their offense there in verse 4 with a fairly well-known ancient parable. Right? Jesus didn't come up with this. We, we read this parable in a number of different places kind of about this time. Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It basically means, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That's our, that's our proverb today that would be similar. And actually, remember, we're a third of the way through the book. This is the first time in the entire gospel that Jesus is called a prophet. And this is, this is important. This is, this is on purpose. This, this brings to mind, as we kind of shifted into this stage of, of, of rejection, this term prophet brings to mind kind of images associated with Old Testament prophets. Jesus has come like one of these prophets, and he has been rejected just as those prophets were. 
His, his saying here implies that he is going to suffer the same fate that every one of these guys did. And the fate that we're going to see next week, the, the, the prophet John the Baptist suffer as well. Right, so the rejection is, is starting with the people here. Right? And this is just kind of foreshadowing the rejection, the total rejection that by his very people, the people that he came to deliver, that is going to come when they, when they string him up on a cross in Jerusalem. And as a result of their rejection, verse 5 tells us that Jesus could do no mighty work. In the same story, in Matthew 13, 58, it says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's not like Jesus couldn't perform a miracle. Or it's not like he's like, oh man, he snapped his fingers, he just couldn't do it. No, he, he chose, in the context of rejection and complete lack of faith, he chose to do nothing. And then our story closes with a very interesting verse. Verse 6 says that Jesus marveled at their faith. This is the only time in the whole book that Jesus is amazed at anything. In fact, in the whole Bible, there are only two times that Jesus marvels or is amazed. And both of those times are related to faith. In Matthew 8.10, Jesus marvels at the great faith of the Gentile Roman soldier. And here he marvels at the great lack of faith of his own Jewish hometown. So with a Gentile soldier in a situation where unbelief wouldn't be expected and faith would not be expected, Jesus is amazed that it's there. Here in a situation where faith would absolutely be expected among his own people in a Jewish town, it's absent. And Jesus marvels at both. He marvels at both great faith and at no faith. So this short kind of little packed story closes tragically with Jesus leaving them because of their great unbelief and he goes elsewhere to teach and to heal. So, so that's the story. Remember, we've got to understand the story so that we can better draw things from it. And it's pretty clear. Like I don't, you don't have to like search and try to figure out what the theme of the story is. It's pretty clear that this story is about unbelief. And as, as we turn to draw a few conclusions and applications from this passage, it's important to ask the seemingly silly question, what is unbelief? Right? What is the definition of unbelief? Now first, I want to draw a distinction for you between doubt and unbelief. Right? The two are actually different. Doubt is different from unbelief. There's a British theologian that I like to read. He, he writes this about this. He says, doubt is natural within faith. It comes because of our human weakness and sin and frailty. Right? He says, doubt is natural. And he goes on. He says, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. Doubt is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. Right? We see the disciples themselves struggling with doubt at times. You're just not being honest if you don't admit that you struggle with doubt at times. Everyone wrestles with doubt. But that's not what we're talking about here particularly. Right? And that's not what we see here in this story in Nazareth. Doubt has trouble believing at times. Unbelief stubbornly refuses to believe in the face of compelling evidence. That's what the people in Nazareth are doing. And that's what so many people still do today. Now, real quick, one more disclaimer. Here's what I don't want you to do. Right? I don't want you to just take what I said and sit back and think, well, well, I believe in Jesus, so 
none of what we're going to talk about here with unbelief applies to me. And I'm free to start, you know, daydreaming or dozing off or kind of doing something else, right? No, no, no. This very much applies to every single one of us, right? Just because you claim to believe in Jesus doesn't get you off the hook for what's to come, right? This is applicable to all of us because all of us, even Christians, fall into unbelief at times, and many who claim to be Christians are not because they have failed to biblically believe. Remember, true saving faith is not just believing some facts about Jesus. Well, I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead, so I'm a Christian. No, that's not faith, right? You're going to hear me say this over and over again because faith is so important, but I think Christians generally so misunderstand faith. So we've got to remember this. Faith, remember three things. K A. T. Faith is knowledge, right? It is knowing the truth about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. Then it is A, it is assent. It is agreeing to the truth of that knowledge. Okay, I know these things about Jesus and I, and I believe those things to be true. Right? That's where a lot of people are. A lot of people got the K and the A down. Right? But that is not biblical saving faith until you get to the T, all right? the, the trust. You got to have all Three. You got to have the knowledge. You got to agree to the truth of that knowledge. And then you have to personally rest and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. It is sitting down in the chair and taking all the weight off yourself and saying, You are my only hope. You are the one who saves. Because there are a lot of people sitting in churches around this country this morning. And I'm sure there are some people in here who, who think they are Christians but who they are actually are not because they have not taken this third step in resting in and trusting in Jesus. They just believe some stuff about him and think that it's true. But that last step is critical. And this, this failure in so many people to trust in Jesus is a result of unbelief. They refuse to give up something that is important to them. They refuse to stop looking at pornography. They refuse to stop sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. They just generally refuse to submit to God's authority. They want to have their cake and eat it too. You, you hear people say this, well, you know, Jesus is my, he's my savior, but, but he's not my Lord. That doesn't make any sense, all right? That's just not biblical. We can't, you can't make that case anywhere from scripture. Jesus is either Lord or he's nothing, all right? And these people are saying, I am not going to give these things up that I love. I'm not going to obey him. And this is unbelief, and this is deadly. In fact, all sins ultimately result from unbelief and the promises of God. All, right? all sin results from unbelief. All right? Think back to the very first sin. What happens? God's told Satan, uh, Adam and Eve some things to do. And what does Satan do? Satan shows up and he says to Eve, God actually say that? I mean, are you, are you sure Eve, that's what God said? Are you sure you can trust this guy? And Eve listens. She chooses to not believe what God has said and to instead go with what she thinks. Unbelief is the root of all sin. When I get angry or I get impatient or frustrated that things aren't going the way that I think they should, what I am actually doing is disbelieving God's promise to me in Romans 8.28 that he works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When I get frustrated and angry and impatient, I am not trusting in God's sovereignty. I'm saying, God, there is no way a super traffic jam can be for my good. I hate traffic jams. There's no way any good can result from this, Lord. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. So I'm going to pout and be angry about this. All sin results from unbelief and the promises 
of God. It is a stubborn refusal to believe him or trust in him, even when he has demonstrated time and time again that he and only he is worthy of our trust. So that is unbelief. That's what unbelief is. But where does this unbelief come from? What is the source of unbelief? Why don't these people in Nazareth believe in Jesus? Last week, we saw that the source of, of faith was God's grace. Jesus Christ is the author. He is the, the initiator. He is the founder of our faith. It is a gift that God gives us. So what about unbelief? Well, the source of unbelief is quite simply us. It is our sin. It is our defiant disobedience of God. It is our own sinful nature and wicked hearts. Let me read a number of verses for you. Romans 8, 5 through 8. You can flip there. This is a really important passage. Um, Paul is writing um, in his longest letter. It's a great letter. We could preach forever on the book of Romans. In Romans 8, 5 through 8, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not even able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 3 says that there is no one good, that there is no one righteous, and that no one seeks after God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This is the source of unbelief. It is our own stubborn, sinful, wicked hearts. We are personally responsible for our own sin and unbelief. We don't believe because it is our nature not to believe. But then we, we act that out in the choices that we make. We unbelieve by nature and then we unbelieve by choice. And notice what Paul says in those first two passages. He says, those in the flesh, those apart from God, cannot obey God. They cannot please God. In Corinthians, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of God. Remember, unbelief is the root of all sin. Right, John 69, Jesus says that the Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict and judge sin. Then right after that, he says, because... They did not believe in me. The two are intimately connected and they cannot be separated. Sin and unbelief always go together. When I get angry or impatient, it's because I don't trust God. John Calvin writes, the source of unbelief is this, when men confine God's power to their own understanding. When men, when we confine God's power to what we can understand. That's exactly Right. We sin when we think that we know better than God. When we think that we know how things should be going better than how He is doing them. That is when unbelief creeps in. We are the source of our own unbelief. It is our sin and our wicked hearts. Some people, however, will still try and argue that the source of unbelief is a simple lack of evidence. In other words, it's, it's God's fault. You know, God didn't do enough. Remember back a few weeks ago, we mentioned this kind of this dead, famous British atheist philosopher, this guy named 
Bertrand Russell. He wrote this really important book that sold all kinds of copies. It was called Why I'm Not a Christian. Right? This guy hated everything that we believe. Well, one day, a kind of a reporter asked Russell what he would say if when he died, he turned out to be wrong. And God came to him and asked, hey, Bertrand, you know, why didn't you believe? And Russell quickly fired back. He said, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. And I've had non-believers say this to me over and over again. This is kind of a common, misinformed, atheist complaint. Well, you know, if God exists, why don't you just come down and show up kind of there on Roosevelt and 58th and do some cool miracles, and then everyone will see and everyone will believe. Now, there are, there are two responses to this argument. The first response is that that is exactly what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, which just means God with us. He did come and perform countless miracles in front of countless eyewitnesses, some of whom wrote down what they saw with their own eyes. Accounts which have been amazingly preserved and handed down to us today. He even performed the greatest miracle ever, and the miracle for which there is the most evidence, and the miracle for which there has never been given a single other reasonable explanation, the resurrection. Right? God did come down and reveal himself. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's what Jesus is doing, revealing God to us. But we see the second response to this complaint. Why didn't God just kind of show up and do some miracles and everyone believe? Well, we see the second response here in our story. Now look at verse 2. In verse 2, we see the people admitting that Jesus teaches with this great wisdom and that he has performed all these amazing miracles. It's not a question of if he had done them or not. They all knew that he had. Right? Galilee is not that far from Nazareth. Right? Plenty of them, I guarantee, had seen and witnessed many of these miracles themselves. But they still didn't believe. Signs and wonders and miracles don't automatically produce belief. It didn't then with Jesus himself, and it wouldn't today. Remember, tens of thousands of people saw and heard Jesus, saw him do these amazing things. And when he left, there were 120 of them. If it somehow did happen today, most people would just make up some sort of excuse or find some way to explain it away. Because in all honesty, as we see in our story this morning, it's not about the evidence. Right? The evidence is there, and there is plenty of it. There's a famous professor. Uh, I'll stop listing these guys eventually, I promise. But across the river, right across the East River, there's this famous philosophy professor there at, at NYU, and his name is Thomas Nagel, right? Nagel is big time, right? In, in kind of the philosophy atheist world, this guy is kind of one of the, the leaders, but he's one of the good ones. Right? This guy is, is smart, and he's kind, and he's intelligent. He writes some really interesting stuff. He, he's in a lot of trouble with atheists because he just put out a book called Mind and Cosmos, which just rips apart their worldview and says, by the way, materialism and Darwinian evolution just doesn't make any sense, right? That's coming from one of their own guys, and they kind of threw him under the bus for it. Well, in an earlier book um, called The Last Word, remember Nagel, an atheist, he admits himself that it's not just about the evidence. Nagel writes this. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. 
I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now listen, at least this guy is being honest. Do you, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that it is not so much about the evidence. He's saying, I don't want things to be that way because this guy is a smart guy. Because he knows that if there is a creator, God of the universe, then the only logical thing to do would be to submit and obey that God. Right? He recognizes that the only logical thing to do if God exists is to believe and follow in that God. It is the height of ridiculousness and irrationality to think, oh, this God might exist, but I'm just going to go off and kind of do my own thing. But Nagel doesn't want it to be the case because he doesn't want to believe. So even if God shows up and gave him all this evidence, he would find some way to explain it away. Because it's not just about the evidence. It's about our wills. It's about our desire to be in control and to not have to submit to the authority of someone else. We don't want God to exist because then if God exists, you're not the boss and you can't do whatever you want. So that's what we do, and that's what these people in Nazareth do. We reject and we ignore what deep down we all know to be true. Lack of faith and unbelief are not due to a lack of evidence. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I use this chapter a lot because it's so good. There's so much packed into it. Uh, in verses 16 through 25, Paul gives a really important argument. I'm just going to read kind of a few parts of it and jump around um, in it from you. So there in Romans 1, starting in verse 16, Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Right? He's talking about everyone. He's talking about everyone who's ever lived. He says, For God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. This is, a, this is a really important passage because Paul says right here that deep down we all know something about God. Just look around the world, right? It's an impossible to miss it. God, it. Paul says that it is so abundant and apparent for the things that have been made that God exists and that he is powerful and that he is divine, right? It, it's just there. It is, in our, it is in creation. It is in the kind of the law that is written on our hearts. It is in, is in our consciences. We all just know deep down that this God exists. The problem isn't the evidence. The problem is that we suppress and reject what we all know. We do what Paul says. We trade the truth for a lie. We refuse to submit to the creator, so we submit to ourselves instead, the, the creature. In other words, we make other things into our gods. Right? Listen, every one of you in here has a God. Right? We, just, we just cannot, we are designed to function worshiping and having faith in, in a God. We, we just can't do it. Right? Calvin says our hearts are little idol factories. It's just part of who we are. That we have to follow something and we have to believe in something. And the Bible calls these idols. Right? And don't think like little kind of things you'll see in some stores or something like these little kind of carved stone images or something. That's, that's not what it's talking about. Right? Idols, these things that we make into our gods, are, are, are anything. It is things like money and jobs and, and sex and, and relationship and comfort and, and ease. 
And in fact, the number one thing that we replace God with is ourselves. Right? That's what unbelief does. It replaces God with us. And this isn't just something that kind of hardcore atheists or, or non-believers do. This is something very much that Christians and people who think they're Christians do as well. This morning in Sunday school, we, we talked about the book of Numbers. Right? The book of Numbers is a very depressing book that gracefully ends on a note of great hope. And the book, the people are just miserable. They're just constantly grumbling and complaining and rebelling against God, even though he had just miraculously delivered them from Egypt with all these kind of amazing signs and wonders. He does these, there's these ten plagues. He, he parts this massive Red Sea. He miraculously feeds and waters millions of people in a desert. And he blesses them with his very presence. And the list goes on and on. But in Numbers 14, 11, God says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? God had shown the Israelites plenty. He could not have given them much more evidence. He could not have done much more than he already had. They had seen amazing things, the likes of which none of us are going to see. Yet they still did not believe. They still did not trust God. Because it's not about the evidence, right? It's something more. It is about our sin and our refusal to submit to God's authority. It is your stubborn refusal to believe even when deep down you know it's true. It's about the condition of our own hearts. That is the source of unbelief. And then that leads to our next point, the, the great power of unbelief. We saw last week that there's this great power of belief, right? Through belief and faith, God brings healing and life. But there is great power in unbelief as well. And unbelief is just a vicious cycle. Unbelief is the fuel of further unbelief. The more unbelief, the more powerful it gets. And we're not talking about a good power here. But what is the power of unbelief? What does unbelief do? One more British guy. There's the philosopher and theologian. This one's one of the good ones. His name is C.S. Lewis, right? He's, he's famous. He wrote the book Mere Christianity. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia kind of back in the middle of the century. But he has another less well-known book titled God in the Dock. Right? I always wondered what in the world that meant. And, you know, it's God floating in the water kind of tied off to a dock. I didn't, I didn't understand it at all because we don't use the word dock like they used to use the word, right? Dock used to refer to where the defendant in a trial set. Right? The dock was where the person who was being judged, the person who was on trial, set. Right? That's the dock, where the person being judged sits. Well, in an essay in this book from which the title comes, C.S. Lewis writes, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approached his judge. Right, see what he's saying? He says, back in the day, people used to approach God in, in fear and in trembling as the one who is, who is going to be judged by the holy, righteous judge. So he says, the ancient man approached God as the accused approached the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Man is on the bench and God is in the dock. This is what unbelief does. It reverses 
the roles. Right? It places us, normal, boring, stupid, sinful people, in the role of judge and determiner of truth. We sit on the bench and we say to the creator, sustainer, and savior of the universe, no, 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 God, I think you're wrong on this one. I've got this. I know better than you. You just sit back and I'll handle things. Right? How arrogant and how ridiculous is unbelief. My unbelief is little nothing Matthew Shores. If you want an idea of how sinful and stupid I am, just go and talk to Melissa. But, but unbelief is Matthew Shores telling Yahweh God that Matthew knows better than him. Unbelief is me declaring my superior intelligence and wisdom to God. All right, this would be like my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter who can't even string together a full sentence, who still goes to the bathroom in her own pants, who still thinks it's wise to shove raisins up her nose, claiming that she knows better than I do. That's what unbelief is. On Wednesday, I took Melissa and Emma to the Bronx Zoo for just a couple hours. Did you know the Bronx Zoo is free on Wednesday, right? That's awesome. Right? And so this is our first time. We went and checked out the Bronx Zoo, and it, and it was awesome. We had a really good time. But one of my favorite exhibits was the grizzly bears. Right? This was amazing because everything else was asleep. The grizzly bears were awake. Right? The grizzly bears were active. They were moving. And these guys were massive and they just had these powerfully terrifying long claws. And we stayed there for so long because these guys were putting on a show. Right? There were three of them and they were just going at it. They were tackling each other. They were wrestling each other. They were, they were hitting each other. It was just really fascinating to watch this amazing display. So, you know, we're up, you know, you're looking down into the bear pit, or whatever it's called, and I'm standing there, and I'm holding my two-foot-tall, 20-pound daughter, and I'm just in awe at the amazing display of power in front of me. But what is my two-foot-tall, 20-pound daughter doing? You may have seen her. She does this with everyone. But she is sitting there. She's desperately holding out her little hands to the bears. Play? Hold you? Hold you? Play? And I'm holding her like, Emma, do you, do you want me to put you down into the bear pit so that you can play with the, bla- with the bears? And she says, yes! She desperately wants to get down and play with the bears, right? She's just wiggling and squirming and just trying to get out of my arms so that you can just get down to those sweet, cute bears and play with them. She just wants, she, she's, what is she saying to me? She's saying, don't worry, Dad. I've assessed the situation, and I have determined that it is a good idea for me to go down and play with the giant, hungry bears. I'm going in, Dad. Right? Our sin and our unbelief is no less ridiculous than my tiny daughter telling me what's best for her and respect to three giant, hungry grizzly bears. And in fact, our unbelief is infinitely stupider than this. Because unbelief is us elevating ourselves above God. And there is nothing more ridiculous than that. It is ultimately declaring that we are in fact God and that he is not. That is the power of unbelief. It switches the roles. It puts us in God's place. But notice that it is a deceptive power. It is a a counterfeit power. It is a deadly power because it doesn't actually reverse the roles. It doesn't actually make us God. We just act like we are. And then that leads to our next point. The result of unbelief. It's there in in verses 5 and 6. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. And what does he do? Quite simply, 
he leaves. This is the result of unbelief. That's it. It is God leaving us to our own devices. He gives to us exactly what we want. Autonomy and no interference from him. And if this condition is never remedied, it leads straight to hell, which is an eternity of what we thought we wanted and what we strived so hard for our entire lives, separation and freedom from God, the source of all that is good. And let me just point out as a side note that you cannot believe in Jesus without believing in hell, right? Because Jesus talks about hell all the time as a real place that those who reject him go. It's not like you either follow God and go to heaven or you don't follow God and that's, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. No, Jesus is clear that not trusting in him and not following God results in hell. Why? Doesn't that seem kind of mean? People complain about this all the time. I just, God seems so mean. It just seems so unfair. But hell makes perfect logical sense if you think about it. Whenever people perceive injustice, right? Take the, the Trayvon Martin case from, uh, from this year and in the previous year. Just a tragic situation. And I'm not commenting on who's right and who's wrong and who should be punished. I'm not, I'm not judging on that at all. But think about it. People perceive that a great injustice has been done in the murder of Trayvon Martin. And they believe then that, that George Zimmerman should be punished for the death of Martin. But he was acquitted and he was not punished and people are angry because we expect justice when there has been wrongdoing. This is why atheists are so inconsistent and illogical. They'll say, oh no, there's, God's mean, there can't be a hell, he wouldn't, he wouldn't punish sin or do something like that. But then when there's injustice in life, they're the first to cry out and say, no, there must be be justice. We've got to do something about this. We've got to protect women's rights. We've got to do this, this, and this because our injustice demands payment. It demands restitution. Right? We all know that deep down, right? When something happens, when there's a crime or something is committed, right? Justice should follow. And if a loved one of yours was murdered, you would expect a good judge to convict and punish the murderer. Why would we expect anything less from God? He is the just judge, and he rightly and justly punishes sin and hell. And that is ultimately the result of unbelief. It is God pulling back his presence and his grace and leaving us to ourselves, which ends in hell every time. So unbelief is deadly. Is there, is there any hope? Is there any remedy for unbelief? And there is, and I didn't come up with this, right? This isn't brilliant. But the remedy, quite simply, is Jesus. It's really that simple. He is the answer. And that's why our story this morning is so sad. They were sitting there staring in the face of the remedy for their unbelief. They were staring in the face of the, the long-awaited Messiah. They were staring in the face of their only hope. They had heard his amazing Teaching. They had seen themselves his amazing miracles, but they still rejected him. And as we've seen, it was not for a lack of knowledge or evidence. It was because of their sinful hearts that they refused to submit to and trust God. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that we must be born again. He says that this is the only remedy 
for unbelief, that we be born again. It is God gracefully doing a work on us to bring our sinful, dead hearts back to life. Because we cannot remedy the problem ourselves. That's why it's called grace. It is not something that we do for ourselves. It is something that God does for us through the work of Jesus Christ. Have you, have you ever heard a pastor talk about Revelation 3.20? Right, pastors love this verse, and they always use it kind of in their evangelistic messages. The verse says, Jesus is talking, and it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Have you ever heard them use this verse? Or they usually say something like, oh, Jesus is, is waiting. He's, he's standing there. He's, he's knocking on the door of your heart. If you'll just open the door, he'll, he'll come and live in your heart, and you'll be saved. But again, listen, such an explanation of this verse proves that people don't actually read the Bible or pay any attention to context. Because that's not what this verse is about at all. Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers in this passage. He is specifically speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to those who have already been saved by God's grace. Because as we've seen in Romans 3.11, no one seeks for God. The unbeliever will not seek. He will not open the door because seeking is the business of believers. The, the greatest um, American theologian in history was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And he writes, the seeking of the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. Right? Seeking is the result of faith. Seeking is not the cause of faith. Because the gospel is that we don't seek after God. He seeks after us. We're described in scriptures as, as sinners, as slaves, as dead, and as God's enemies. We're not like running to him, like begging him after him, oh God, please come and, and save us. No, we're directly, actively running away from him in the other direction. And he runs right after us. He has grace on us. He, he sends his son to take our place, to face hell in our place so that we don't have to. He pays the penalty that we all justly deserve to pay. He pays it in our place so that we don't have to pay it. He dies so that we can live. That's the gospel. It is quite simply the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. If we could seek after God, if we could be good enough and choose God on our own power, then there would be no point in Jesus coming and dying on the cross. But he did come and he did die on the cross. And he was resurrected three days later exactly because we couldn't remedy our condition ourselves. Jesus Christ and God's grace is the only remedy for unbelief. Only God giving us faith and repentance through grace can defeat our unbelief. So, so does all that mean that we just sit back and do nothing? Absolutely not. Right? What do you do if you're sitting in here this morning and you've realized that you haven't believed? Well, the Bible tells us quite simply that every one of us are called to repent and believe, to, to turn away from our sin and our rebellion against God and to trust in Jesus Christ. How? How do you do that? Well, again, you, you take advantage of the simple kind of means of grace that God has provided. The, the ways in which God has made it clear to us that he works in the world. You, you pray. You confess. You just open up and say, listen, I don't believe. I, I am a sinner. I don't want to submit 
to your authority. You gotta admit that first. You you pray to God. You you admit that you need help. You ask Him to save you. You ask Him to grant you faith and repentance. You come find me afterwards and and we talk about it. I I can't save you, but it's it's just good to talk about these things. You, You come get a Bible from me and then you start reading it. You get some books from me to to help you learn. You continue to attend church and learn about Jesus. You surround yourself with other believers. Because God tells us that he works in the world primarily through his word and through his church. And so you just just submit yourself. You kind of submerge yourself in these things. You go and start listening to sermons online. Just Get in the Word and start learning about Jesus. Go listen to guys like John Piper and Tim Keller. Go listen to Pastor Ed Moore down the street. He's a much better pastor than I am. Go listen to these men who who understand God's Word and God's goodness and salvation by grace. Whatever you do, just do something. Because there is nothing more important than where you stand with Jesus Christ. Just do something. Do you possess belief or unbelief? Because these last few weeks, we've seen the result of both. And I promise you that the result of belief is eternally more desirable. We must all pray and ask and have the attitude of the desperate father that we're soon going to meet in Mark 9, 24, who cries out to Jesus. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, God. Help my own belief. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, revealing yourself to us through it. Father, we thank you for giving the, us the word and your people, the church. We thank you that you work and are active in the world um, um, through these two avenues. So, Father, I pray that we would, we would take advantage of these, these, these avenues of grace. Father, that we would just be a people who'd love and know your word. We would spend just time every day um, reading and learning and memorizing your word. We would surround ourselves with, with other believers who can encourage us and, and challenge us and sharpen us. And Father, that you would just make us a community who loves you and who loves each other and who wants to reach out and serve this community. Father, we confess our great unbelief. We confess how easy it is for us to, to slip into this, to, to not trust you, to turn from you and to reject you and to, to make ourselves God. Father, we we ask that you have mercy on us. We thank you that it is not our record um, that determines our relationship with you. We thank you that it is the perfect record of Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending us a Savior to to stand in our place, to take on our punishment, and to give us his life. Father, right now, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who, who, who does not believe. I pray that you would do a work on their heart, Father. Grant them faith and repentance. Bring their dead hearts back to life for your glory. We pray all these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.